All right, episode one of what is for now being called the Game Time Podcast. Um, we have a lot of things on the agenda, a lot of college football, specifically the new Alabama coaching hire, which for the record, I would like to say I predicted that right after Saban's retirement. Um, a little bit of recap on the national championship game, the college football playoffs in general, a little bit of recap on that, and then maybe touch on some NFL topics at the end as well, including the newest coaching vacancies and the uh, Bears' number one pick predicament. So, as I said, starting out with Nick Saban's retirement and now Kellen DeBoer stepping in to replace him. It has been confirmed today. I think that's a home run hire by Alabama. I kind of predicted this a couple of days ago, and I've seen a lot of other sports casters predict sort of the same kind of coaching carousel that I did, where they would first go after Sark. And although it's not been confirmed, I think undoubtedly they would call up Sark over at Texas. Former Alabama assistant coach, absolute mastermind on the offensive side of the ball, as well as a juggernaut in recruiting, as we've seen at Texas. He's been able to bring that Longhorns program back into the national spotlight, bringing them to the college football playoff semifinals, ultimately losing to who else other than Kellen DeBoer. Um, so I think they took a look at him. I think up there with him, I don't know if he was first or second, I think Dan Laning at Oregon, definitely... Um, I'm sure they talked to him. I'm sure they offered him. There's rumors flying around everywhere that he was for sure going to be the next coach at Alabama. Again, really good coach. Uh, recruiting powerhouse up there in Oregon, although that could be also be attributed to Phil Knight's involvement with the school. But, you know, just to delve into those two and why I don't think they ultimately ended up at Alabama, I think, I don't know, I think it's hard to pull a coach out, especially in this day and age of college football with NIL and Transfer Portal Money is especially not nearly as big as an issue as it once was. There's not nearly as big of discrepancies between schools. At one point, I, I know Alabama probably would be able to just shovel out money to these coaches. And while they can still do that, so can these other schools. I mean, you look at Sark at Texas. I don't see any world where he would leave Texas to go to Alabama. I think that's more of a lateral move than anything. They're one, they're going to be in the same conference next year. So there's no conference prestige there behind it. They're both going to be in the SEC. Two, Sark, I mean, he's already getting paid. All these coaches nowadays get paid 9, 10, 11, 12 million dollars a year. So, you know, other than the buyout fee, he's not going to be pocketing a bunch of cash for moving over. Three, he has such a good recruiting base there in Texas. He has the whole, obviously, state of Texas. He's in the South there with Alabama. He's, I mean, if anything, he's competing with Alabama for these, these recruits. And then three, he's, he's making a name for himself at Texas, or four, whatever number I'm on. He's making a name for himself at Texas. He's you know, he has a chance to go into the kind of legendary GOAT status as a Texas Longhorns coach if he continues this run um, that he's been on. I mean, Texas was, no one was talking about them for a good decade there in the 2010s as far as being one of the top contenders, and he's brought them back into contention. So he has his legendary status. He has money. He has the recruitment profile. He has a great team underneath him already, already in the SEC. I think I don't know. I think moving to Alabama makes no sense. The only other difference between Texas and Alabama at this point is he'd have to be living in Nick Saban's shadow at Alabama if he were to move over. So, you know, it doesn't make much sense. And for Dan Lanning, same sort of thing. He's at Oregon, great recruitment, moving into the Big Ten, which I think automatically or ultimately plays in his favor as opposed to moving to Alabama in the SEC. Because the Big Ten, I mean, both of these conferences are probably going to get four or five schools, depending on the year, in the new 12-team expanded college football playoff. Um, maybe three, four, maybe five. Five is kind of pushing it, but probably three or four teams from each conference. And if you think about it, the, the SEC is just way more crowded. I mean, you have Kirby Smart at Georgia. 
you have Sark at Texas, if Oklahoma can get it figured out, Brian Kelly at LSU. I mean, you have these juggernaut schools. It's it's just a really packed SEC. And not to say the Big Ten isn't good. Obviously, Ohio State's going to be in there every year. Michigan's going to be taking a step down if Harbaugh leaves. And even if he doesn't, you know, Michigan, Ohio State, they're probably always going to be in there. But then outside of them, it's you have your Penn State's, you have Washington, Oregon, USC. I mean, these are all just people that he's been competing against in the Pac-12. So I don't see why Dan Lanning would transfer over to the SEC. I think that's, you know, you're getting the same benefits that you are at Oregon, except with the added challenge of, oh, well, now I have to go against all of these premier programs, the South recruitment base, the, you know, so I don't think it makes much sense for either of those coaches. I will say one coach that I thought kind of had a chance to make a push for this Alabama job yesterday, and he was in the um, conversations, you know, right after Nick Saban retired is Mike Norvell at Florida State. And I thought the news that came down on them yesterday, which was the NCAA putting them on a two-year probation for NIL recruitment violations. I believe they tried to lure over a transfer from Georgia using NIL incentives, which I think it's a dumb rule, but it is against the rules to use your NIL package as a recruitment tactic. So yeah, they're on a two-year probation. And I thought, I thought he could make a really late push for it. I thought there's no way he's going to stay there on a two-year probation. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the players there are probably going to start transferring out. Um, you know, maybe I'm over-exaggerating, but I think that's a pretty big hit to the program. He was just getting on track, obviously an undefeated season. But now he's losing his top quarterback, his top receiver to the draft. Um, and now this two-year probation, I thought, okay, there's a chance he could, he could head over to Alabama if, obviously... Um, Kellen DeBoer decided to stay at Washington because um, I do think Kellen DeBoer is a better hire, but I thought Mike Norvell would really be making a strong push there and, and ultimately head over. But as we see, it's Kellen DeBoer who ultimately comes out as the Alabama head coach. And I think that's probably as best case of a scenario as Alabama could have. I mean, Kellen DeBoer, as far as just demeanor, leadership, coaching style goes, I think in many ways he mimics Nick Saban in, in the fact that he has this NFL sort of stature and demeanor on the sideline. He's very cool, calm, collected, um, very professional. I don't know. I don't know about his, you know, his process and his standards. Um, using a term that Nick Saban would use when he was at Alabama, but you know, he's won everywhere he's been: FCS, Fresno State, Washington. Now, I mean, you see what he's done to that Washington program, put them in the semifinals and ultimately the championship where they just fell short to Michigan. I think he outcoached Sark in the in the college football semis. I mean, granted, it was a bad matchup, and we'll talk about that a little later as well. But, um, I mean, he, he, is, he is as good of a coach as there is in college football. I think he could even ultimately make the jump to the NFL. That's how much praise I give him in the um, coaching standards. I think his only downfall and something that he's yet to prove is how good he can recruit, you know? Um, in a lot of these places, he's just worked with the team he's been given um, and done miraculous things with them. As I just said, he's won everywhere he's been. But I I'm curious to see how well he recruits and how, how well he's able to maintain a lot of these kids who um, are feared to be transferring to other schools after Nick Saban's retirement, and probably rightfully so. But um, going up against as I talked about earlier, these Southern recruiting powerhouses in Kirby Smart in Georgia, Brian Kelly, LSU, Sark in Texas, how well he can stack up with them in the recruitment profiles. I know he's a great coach and you know, that may 
play in his favor. He's never had a recruiting base and the, you know, money behind him and the NIL packages behind him that he will have at Alabama and booster support. So maybe, I mean, we've seen what he's done with lackluster teams and teams that have, you know, three-star powerhouses like Washington. So maybe with more recruitment resources, he's able to get even better players and bring the best out of them even. So it's going to be really interesting. I think it's, as I said, a home run hire for Alabama. I think this is probably... I would say best case scenario, maybe other than Dan Lanning and Steve Sarkeesian, like I touched on. Um, Kellen DeBoer, stellar hire, stellar choice, and I think very worthy of following in the footsteps of Nick Saban. All right, so now moving into a bit of a recap of the college football playoffs and the national championship game ultimately. Maybe, and I want to preface this, I am a Texas Longhorns fan. I have been my whole life. So maybe this is just me being a salty Texas Longhorns fan. But I think Texas in the national championship, and I think a lot will agree with me, would have been a much more competitive matchup against Michigan. Not saying they would have won, not saying the outcome would have been any different. Um, I actually love the fact that Michigan won but uh, for, a, for a variety of reasons. But I do think Texas just matched up with Michigan far better than Washington did. And I think Texas got pretty unlucky in the draw to match up with Washington. Not again, I mean, it's such a tricky scenario. Not that I would have wanted to match up with Alabama or Michigan more in the semifinals if I were Texas, but Texas past defense against Washington. And this was heavily covered leading up to the game, but Texas had a, a terrible pass defense this year. I think among the worst in the country, even at, at some points in the season, and Washington, obviously, just an all-time prolific passing offense with Michael Penix, Rome, Adunze, um, Polk, uh, just a plethora of weapons on the outside, a pretty good veteran running back, obviously Michael Penix, and, and you saw what happened. I mean, Michael Penix sliced them up. But even with, with that, with that weakness, I think Texas came within, obviously, I mean, they had four tries within the 15 to win the game. So... You know, an unlucky matchup, they ultimately fell up short. But in the national championship game, I really think you saw that come to fruition where Michigan is just, I mean, ground and pound. And I give credit to Washington, actually. They kept it a lot closer throughout that game than I think I and many others would have seen coming. It wasn't really until the fourth quarter that Michigan really pulled away. I mean, there was that stretch in the first quarter where I really thought, wow, Texas would have been a much better matchup for this because, I mean, Michigan was just running it down Washington's throat. They had those two long touchdowns early. It was 14-3 to at one point. It just looked like, okay, Michigan's going to pull a Michigan versus Penn State that we saw earlier in the year where they're just going to run the ball every single play down Washington's throat, and they're going to be able to do nothing. And to their credit, Washington did. They started covering gaps better. They stopped the run. They made McCarthy make a couple plays there in the fourth quarter where he had to use his legs. Um and he ultimately did to kind of pull away. But all credit to Washington. I just think Texas inside matches up so much better as far as defensive line plays. And it's one of the weaknesses of Washington that we saw. And contrary to Washington, Texas obviously has that stellar defensive line. I think the run would have been shut down a lot sooner. And then they would have forced McCarthy to make plays that he's not you know, accustomed to making as far as throwing the ball, making reads against... I mean, obviously a below average pass defense, but I think it matches up well in our favor that McCarthy is also not suited to be dicing up the defense the way that Michael Penix did us in the semifinals. And, you know, like I talked about Michigan, just a very physical team, big up front, but Texas already saw that. I mean, we saw that during the season when we played and ultimately beat Alabama in their home stadium, right? 
Um, I think Michigan and Alabama are pretty much the same team, except Michigan has an upgrade at quarterback, if I'm being honest. Not that Jalen Milrow isn't good. He's just more of a runner than a thrower. And I think McCarthy is capable of making these throws, at least, although he's not used to doing so. So I think Texas versus Michigan would have been a much better matchup in the championship, although I can't complain with what we had. As I said, Washington, and I think that's another just tribute to Kellen DeBoer, really really made the game close and competitive and gave themselves a chance, at least, which is all you can kind of ask for as a Washington fan. I think many were predicting Michigan would run away with this one, especially after that start that I talked about with the run game. As far as the championship game itself goes, I thought I thought Michigan's defense was really the story. I mean, Michael Penix, he didn't play as well in this game as he did against Texas, which again hurts me as a Texas fan, but, um, you know, missed a few throws, missed a few reads. I, I, I know he missed... Um, Rome on a couple couple plays that would have had a great chance at being a touchdown. He just kind of missed him in the flat or missed him crossing um, across the middle. So not the best game on Penix's part, but I thought Michigan's, obviously Michigan's D-line is kind of the story of this game. And everyone's been talking about how physical they are up front and how they were able to, to get to Penix, hit him. He was obviously kind of shaken up by the end of the game, limping off the field. We saw him. But I think even aside from that, I don't think Michigan's DBs are getting enough credit and coaching staff for that matter. I thought the coaches put all of the DBs in, in the right place. I thought obviously the D-line was physical that I just said that they were able to get to Penix, kind of rush his process more. Um, but I thought the DBs made Penix have to get rushed because he just had nowhere to go. He was trying to make reads. I mean, he felt rushed, was a little flustered, maybe with some nerves heading into the game, but I mean, especially early on, you saw, I just thought the DBs blanketed these Washington receivers throughout the entire game, which was the most impressive part of the game to me, because all the talk was how good these Washington receivers are. They have two, three receivers that may be drafted this year, two possibly in the first couple rounds, um, one of which in Roma Dunze, who's going to be the second receiver off the board this year. And he was just, anytime they would show a replay on an incomplete pass, he was blanketed, absolutely blanketed. Uh, Penix had two picks. I just thought this Michigan defense really showed them themselves. Um, and, you know, just, just a well-coached team on both sides of the ball. But like, like I keep saying, this defense really impressed me this game. All right, finishing this episode up with a bit of NFL rambling, I want to talk about the Chicago Bears and their predicament with the number one pick. Now, there's been a lot of debate. Do you draft a quarterback, probably Caleb Williams, or do you stick with Justin Fields? Do you trade the pick and try to get a plethora of picks and, and build around Justin Fields, get a lot of weapons for him, um, sign some people, get a better coach? Well, obviously we saw they stuck with Matt Eberflus, which I think is a pretty dumb decision, especially with what I'm going to say next as far as what I would do with the pick. But I think this is an easy choice. You go with Caleb Williams. You, you trade Justin Fields. You get back some picks in that package and you draft Caleb Williams with the number one overall pick. I mean, earlier this season, he was seen as a generational prospect. I still think he is by many scouts. The, the topics surrounding his name have kind of been, kind of been drugged through the mud as, if, as of late here, painting his nails, you know, um, showing off some of the, his car and his penthouse in LA and uh, asking for ownership in whatever team drafts him. I think his the aura around his name has kind of gone downhill but he's still a generational prospect as far as arm talent athleticism his ability to escape pressure 
his ability to even he improved drastically this year reading defenses and staying within the pocket and delivering a um i mean just a beautiful ball so i think you draft caleb williams now a lot of people are gonna shoot back and say well his teammates justin field's teammates want him his teammates are all coming out and saying we want fields the fans are saying we want fields draft uh, marvin harrison build around fields i mean the thing with fields is he he's not a bad player and that's why i say you trade him probably to atlanta maybe to atlanta get get a lot of picks back or a few picks at least get a couple solid young players maybe my problem with justin fields is that he's he's sort of just a lesser lamar jackson we see what lamar jackson is uh soon to be two-time mvp of the league he rushes for a thousand yards almost every season at this point he throws for another two to three thousand he's a well-established quarterback in this league and what the Ravens have built around him on offense as far as just an absolute powerhouse running the football. Um, strong O-line. They now have a few good weapons at receivers. But, I mean, with Justin Fields, he's that with the ability to run, the ability to escape pressure, but he can't throw the ball. He's an improved passer this year and his teammates like him. And as far as positives go, I think that's about it. Um, he's a good locker room guy. Obviously, you like that, but his passing ability, I mean, the last game is so telling me you can't go out and lose a season finale game to your division rivals like that. If they had lost in a shootout and he played an amazing game, we would be we would be having a different conversation right now, I will say. I mean, not that one game defines him, but they did go, I think it was eight and two, maybe seven and two over the last nine games of the season. So obviously an improved team, and that's why I can kind of see them keeping Eberflus. But, I mean, in the last game against Green Bay, got to win that. Everyone, there was no stakes on the line really for the Bears, but division you had a chance to knock a division rival out of the playoffs. Green Bay has beaten you every single game for the last, I don't even know how many years, probably 15, 16 games. And to put up nine points against that defense especially is... Not a good showing for Justin Fields. Throws for under 200 yards. Puts up nine points against a defense that's ranked near last in all passing defense statistics. You just can't do it. And and after that showing, I think it really just put the nail in the coffin. I still, even, even if he had a great game, I would still say you have to draft Caleb Williams. Because, um, I mean, trading the number one picture, you can now maybe draft Marvin Harrison. Maybe get two other picks in this year's first round maybe i mean obviously you can get way more for the number one pick than you can for justin fields but it's not like you're going out empty if you draft caleb williams and get rid of justin fields you're still going to be getting back a couple of picks potentially a couple young players justin fields is not a bad player as i just said he's just not the passer that chicago needs chicago has not had a quarterback in the entire history of their franchise that has been a reliable sustainable starting quarterback for them So I think you have the chance this year with a generational prospect. You have another first-round pick, number nine, I believe, a top-ten pick. There you can get another weapon. I mean, there's tons of receivers in this draft. There's tons of offensive tackles. Get a tackle. Just get – you have to draft Caleb Williams, though. And one more point on this. I think think if you stick with Fields and Caleb Williams or Drake May even, turns out to be the generational prospect that they're both being hyped up to be – the Bears continue to be a laughing stock, right? Whereas if you trade Justin Fields and draft Caleb Williams, I think I think it's a can't miss either way there because 
if Fields ends up blowing up afterwards and Caleb Williams, worst case scenario, is just a terrible quarterback in the league, it's another Mitch Trubisky situation, which it won't be. But even if it that does happen, worst case scenario, well, the fallback is Caleb Williams was a generational prospect. He was viewed as a generational prospect at the time. No one's getting fired for drafting Caleb Williams first overall. Okay, so I think you move off Fields. I think the upside is enormous. I even think there's less downside as I just said, and I think it's just the obvious choice. And that brings me to why I think keeping Eberflus is such a bad decision for the Bears. I understand he ended the the season on a high note. I understand he's only in his second year as, as a head coach. I understand he may have a good grasp on the locker room, although I'm not sure how true that statement actually is. But I think if you're if you're starting out with Caleb Williams, which I think you should, you need a young offensive-minded coach. And that's what everyone talks about these days. Um, but I really like the idea of getting a coach in with your quarterback and letting them grow together, as we've seen on a few other occasions across the league. And even aside from that, the coaching market this year is absolutely bonkers. I mean, you have you, you guys were getting mentioned in the same sense as Jim Harbaugh as a place to go. I don't think he ends up with Chicago if he leaves Michigan. I think he will end up with the Chargers, maybe Washington. But, I mean, just being mentioned in the same sense as Jim Harbaugh, you have Mike Vrabel, you have now Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll. I mean, obviously these are older guys, but even on the younger side, there are just so many options coming available that I think you either take one of these experienced guys and get Chicago back on a winning situation with Caleb Williams at the helm and an experienced coach like Vrabel, or you, you hire a guy like Ben Johnson out of, out of Detroit, like I just said, and have a young offensive-minded coach with a young rookie quarterback, many of you as a generational prospect. And I think you have something special going for you in Chicago, along with the number nine pick and the picks you get back from trading fields. I think that scenario sets you up far nicer than it would to just run it back because that's essentially what you're doing. And I think them keeping Eberflus may have been a sign that they've, they've made their minds up on Justin Fields and they are going to be trading him because otherwise, what are you doing? You're just running it back with the same team as well as a, a few more additional, you know, rookie weapons. So I think it's an easy decision there. And that just about wraps up everything that I, I had to ramble about on this podcast episode. Other than that, you know, touching back on college football real quick, I just wanted to say a couple more things about Nick Saban and what he's meant to the sport of college football. I mean, he's just ubiquitous with college football. He is the sport at the end of the day. He transformed not only Alabama as a program, not only that city, he he transformed the SEC even. He turned them into a powerhouse conference, not to say they weren't good beforehand, but once Alabama really came to fruition under Saban, all of the other programs within the SEC were just trying to catch him that's all it is even even to this day when he retired kirby smart trying to catch him um florida at one point in the early or late 2000s sorry 2008 2009 trying to catch saban at bama um, once he won that championship against texas in 2009 um just a really cool fact here that i wanted to end the end this episode on nick saban at alabama produced more first round draft picks then he had losses over his tenure at the program. That is just probably one of the most absurd stats I've ever heard in my life. He's made so many people millionaires 
as far as players go and also coaches. I mean, we talked about the first segment on this on this episode was talking about the coaches that he's produced, even ac- across college and pro football alike. So many, his coaching tree is so vast. His player tree is so vast. Just an absolute, you know, sculptor to the sport of football, to the sport of college football. He built much of what we see of it today. Just an absolute legend. And just wanted to end it on that fact. I thought it was a, such such an insane statistic. So that's it for today's episode. Hopefully there's another one coming soon. See you guys later, whoever may be listening. See you.